Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This episode is proudly sponsored by Integrity, your partner for life. Integrity recently launched an exclusive research paper to help advisors understand how to attract and retain new clients. They believe their role in the industry is bigger than just providing products. They want to help create a sustainable industry, educate clients, and support advisors personally in their business. You can get a copy of the report and learn more about Integrity if you visit integritylife.com.au forward slash xy. Welcome back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today I'm joined by Graham Rich. Welcome, Graham. Kia ora, Fraser. How are we today? <laughs> Very well, thank you. One of my uh, one of my fellow Kiwis uh, coming coming at you, and in fact, not just one of my fellow Kiwis, one of the people who uh, are from the the south of uh, well, went to Otago University. One of the people from the south of the country. I'm hoping you're a Highlanders supporter as well. No, mate. I'm a Crusaders supporter, uh, and and uh, have been from uh, the inception of the Crusaders. So that shows how old I am. I was around way before the Crusaders started. Uh, there you go. There you go. Now, now you're of course uh, running a um, well. You're the uh, you're the CEO. The, you're the dean of a well, a, an organisation called Portfolio Construction Forum. Uh, do you want to give us a quick overview of that? Well, I should also give a quick qualification. I've lived in Australia for over 25 years, so I, I still have kids, grandkids, all the family in New Zealand apart from my wife and myself, uh, but I have a really strong affinity in the Australian marketplace. Uh, and and uh, so going to your question, Portfolio Construction Forum is a specialist and independent provider of a whole raft of continuing education services, CPD services, uh, we call it postgraduate education content. In other words, what we don't do is um, training to help individuals become financial advisors or become involved in the investment space. But once they are involved, they've met the regulatory requirements or the, 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 the basic education requirements. Our business is uh, somewhat unique in Australia and New Zealand, and we have New Zealand clients as well as Australian clients, um, somewhat unique because we focus on a whole array of specialist content in the investment space, helping people do a better job of building quality investment portfolios or interpreting and uh, helping their clients understand investment portfolios uh, that's our that's our business. Well, wow, fantastic! And there's sort of two main areas of that business, isn't there? There are. Um, we we are responsible in the Asia Pacific for a certification called Certified Investment Management Analyst, which is openly for the pointy heads. Um, it's it's for young uh, young advisors who really have a deep focus on technical aspects and want to develop their skills as um, really strong investment advisors, so certified investment management analyst, and we run a program then called the SEMA Society, uh, which is for SEMA certificates. Um, that's quite a technical program, and we then have another special interest group called the Phenology College, and we may talk about phenology a little bit on the way through, Fraser, but phenology is this mongrel word, half fin behavioral finance and half ology investor psychology so that's phenology it just saves me saying two words um which or four words i guess um and and so phenology college is for those who are really keen to keep developing behavioral finance skills and investor psychology skills so they're better at connecting between the investing pieces and the investor pieces the client pieces so those are the two things we do sema society and phenology college are the two kind of schools that we run inside portfolio construction forum yeah, fantastic. And we're probably, you're absolutely right. We will dig a little bit deeper into this phenology college because uh, phenology is a word that, I, I mean, I, you made this word up, didn't you? 
Well, I stole it. And that's, I mean, I started a business called uh, Morningstar. Uh, before that, it was called FPG Research. And one of the key things to understand about research is it's essentially theft with a kind of wrapper around it because research is all about poking around everywhere else, gathering stuff and packaging it up and saying, here's some research. So I started a research business in 1983, uh, which ended up being called Morningstar when I sold it to them in 1999. Um and uh, so having finished at Morningstar 2001, uh, Portfolio Construction Forum started, and this phonology space um, is a word that came from a bloke in the US called Dick Wagner, who is one of the founders of the Financial Planning Association in the US. Uh, he's passed away now a number of years, and he was always on about how do we make the, the concept of investment advice connect with investors so i'm the one that came up with the idea of well if i interpret phonology the two words that connect with me are behavioral finance the fin and investor psychology theology so that's i made that bit up you're right it's it's a mongrel word though it's it's a bit like webcast or podcast uh, they are all what are called portmanteau words they're smashing words at microsoft there's another one motel there's another one they're these kind of mongrelized words which come together uh, and make it easy for Kiwis, especially instead of saying four words, we can just say one. Yeah, fantastic. Love it. Love it. Love it. Now, uh, obviously, um, you, you, well, you mentioned you started up a business that uh, research business that later be- was purchased by Morningstar. Uh, but before that, let's go back a bit further. You were, um, again, as we sort of mentioned, you, you grew up in New Zealand. Um, you were one of... <laughs> You started uh, your investment portfolio, um, well, uh, and certainly when it comes to products, at the age of fourteen. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like you'd, um, you know, left school and, and done uh, things. I had a I had a paper round, uh, and so I had a, a, a significant income stream. Obviously, uh, every morning, uh, mostly my father. I was uh, the kid of. Um, uh, a, a couple who eloped from South Africa, moved to New Zealand. I uh, was born in Auckland and uh, dad and mum, but dad particularly had a really strong work ethic um, and uh, got me into this paper round that I started about nine years old, 14 years old. I had an income stream and dad had his AMP agent meet with me. And I remember that distinctly because the AMP agent met with me at his request at dad's with dad's approval dad left the room and left me to it and i ended up buying a whole of life policy which i i have to say i was incredibly proud of i remember distinctly telling my uh, mates at school uh, that i had a life insurance policy uh, i was really proud of it 50 dollars a year um and uh, so I started that at the age of 14, which uh, for those of you who want to calculate it, that, that out, was about uh, 1968. Um, so I was, I was uh, pleased to have the beginning of understanding investment stuff. Um, the, the fellow who sold it to me um, explained what was going on. I, I remember distinctly meeting with him in our little... Uh, two-bedroom house. So that was my beginning experience that I think, Fraser, influenced my future career. Yes, absolutely. I would 100% agree with that. The old uh, whole of life policy, half and, you know, small amount of investment and, and a bit of life insurance in it. Uh, and then, of course, when you uh, went, went to university, we sort of talked about that. But then afterwards, you sort of dive straight into the uh, the industry as a, as a fully qualified or when I say qualified, you, you had a degree and then you started in, um, in, in financial advice industry. I, I, look, I, I, I just did what I did. I didn't kind of think of how significant it was, but it, it, when I look back now, uh, I think it probably was significant because in, uh, in 1975, uh, I was, 21 years of age, I'd finished a degree at University of Otago in psychology, uh, and um, I took my first job as I thought of it. Uh, I didn't realize that I was, I didn't have a job at all. I'd started in a self-employed role as a life insurance agent working under contract as a sole agent to Norwich Union Life Insurance Society. Now, most people probably never heard of that now because it's disappeared, turned out to be called Aviva. Uh, and then the life insurance part, I think, in Australia was 
uh, bought uh, ultimately by uh, NAB and MLC. But I started as a life insurance agent. I was the first life insurance agent who had a degree working for Norwich Union, at least. And secondly, I was by far the youngest they'd ever employed, 21 years of age. But uh, um, I still think in uh, feet and inches, uh, Fraser, um, I'm six foot four. I was before I started shrinking, I guess. I'm six foot four and I've, you know, always kind of looked a bit older than I really am. Um, and and so at 21, I kind of could hold myself reasonably well, and nobody said, well, that's awfully young, uh, and I got into it, uh, thoroughly enjoyed my role, and began in the, the financial services industry through life insurance, became, uh, became um, sales manager uh, by the time I was 24, became... Uh, uh, South Island manager for New Zealand by the time I was 26, uh, national marketing manager by the time I was 27, and then left and started my own business, uh, which is what turned out to be uh, the Morningstar business on one side and a financial advisory firm on the other. So I've been, my career has been, and I, I hark back to this life insurance policy that I bought and say, you know, I, whatever reason, I had an affinity to this stuff. Yeah, fantastic. And your career, I, I, I describe your career as something that the uh, the current XY advisor community uh, is going through, you know, qualified coming up, coming through, working for a business for some time, starting your own business. Now, talk to me about starting the your first financial planning business. Uh, in in um, uh, 1980, I um, had a national management responsibility for uh, Norwich. And uh, 1980 was the beginning of the, as it was called in New Zealand, at least the investment linked life insurance uh, uh, kind of movement where life, whole of life type stuff, endowment type stuff started splitting apart. And here's the investment piece. And that really captured my imagination. Uh, I, I have to say it, 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 I had a younger brother who worked for me in a financial planning practice uh, that he owned. Um, he passed away uh, when he was 33 years old. He'd been two years in the business of running a financial planning practice in New Zealand. And he had a huge amount of life insurance, which he only would have taken as a consequence of the role that I got him involved with. So I, I want to put a stake in the ground and say, I have a fundamental commitment to the role that life insurance plays. And I have personal experience in the fact that my brother's wife raised a four-year-old and a three, a four-year-old and a two-year-old through without having to work because of the significant amount of life insurance she had. So let me put that stake in the ground first. But Notwithstanding that conviction of the role that life insurance plays, my passion was around investment stuff. And so uh, in the development of this unbundled life insurance movement, some in the US called it universal life, um, uh, unbundled is what it was ending up being called in New Zealand. To be honest, I don't know what it was called in Australia, but it was called unbundled. Yeah, I've, I've heard it described here as unbundled as well. Yeah, mm. and that was the splitting up of life insurance into the component parts. And in many respects, that was the beginning of the demise of the traditional life insurance agent. And so in the very early 80s, 81, 82, I had a national marketing role as part of what I had responsibility for for Norwich. I was still a young buck um, and uh, in, in my mid-20s. Um, and, and so I went on a study tour to the US for uh, five weeks, uh, looking at trends in the development of, um, of uh, financial services, universal life, investment advice, and so on. Um, I became a member of what was then called the International Association for Financial Planning, the predecessor uh, to um, the Financial Planning Association, as it's now called in the US, as well as here. Uh, I started the Financial Planning Association of New Zealand, which happened to be called IAFP, um, and I'm still a life member of, of that. I guess you become a life member for life. Um, but um, 
that that's what really started my interest in the financial planning or the financial advice or the investment advice world. So I came back to Norwich and said, this is the way we ought to evolve. And um, uh, uh, the fellow who was the head at the time of Norwich was a Scot. Um, he's since passed away, so I can be even more rude probably, but he could not see what I was on about because my argument was we ought to stop having life agents and start having financial advisors. He was like, no, 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 we don't do that. So literally I said in 1982, well, in that case, I'll do it myself. And so I left Norwich uh, in, in, uh, at the end of 1982 and the beginning of 1983, I started a business called Financial Planning Group in Christchurch. Uh, and it was, as it happened, uh, the first financial planning, independent financial planning uh, practice in New Zealand. Uh, there were financial planning practices in Australia at the time, but very few like on the one hand, you could count them. And so I started the first financial planning practice and uh, the rest kind of is history. The few few other businesses I've started and sold and including that financial planning practice. And I'm super proud to say, Fraser, sorry for rabbiting on, but that financial planning practice is still in existence today after me having sold it. And I'm really, really proud of that because it shows the longevity of uh, the financial advice uh, profession, if you like, from from my start of '83. Yeah, fantastic, and um, it's always nice when somebody says it can't be done, and then you turn out and do it, and it's and it's lasted all this time as well. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, so, yeah. so back then you also um, started the research business and then, and this is the sort of, uh, to me, this is a bit of a trend you've got, you know, the financial planning arm, the, 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 the belly to belly conversations with clients, you're still helping mm. in that way uh, with what you're doing now, but also you had this research business for the, as you say, the, the, uh, the pointy heads. Uh, yeah, I started a business. So financial planning group uh, was one business I started and, and just to show you that, that, you know, I, perhaps sound cocky. Um, when you look back at the time, you never were cocky. So I started on the 1st of April, 1983, because I thought if it was a joke yeah. um, and failed, uh, that's what I'd say. Um, uh, I started at the same time a company uh, that was called FPG, Financial Planning Group Research, and that was the research business. And those two businesses were the first two businesses I started. Uh, in due course, I, I started three or four other businesses um, on the way through, but every one of those businesses was about providing support services to financial advice and to financial advisors. In due course, I sold the financial advisory business because of what I perceived as the conflict of running an advisory business, as well as offering services to other financial advisory businesses. So the research business is what won out, and, and that's essentially because my passion was a, around service provision to advisors, training advisors, um, and so on and so forth. So there's a whole bunch of other things I started, little little businesses all grew, prospered, and I sold, and they carried on. Yeah, fantastic. And tell us about your move to Australia then. So the research business prospered to the point that in 19, uh, about 1988, 89, and through 1990, I extended the research business and began had some staff in Australia. Uh, so I was traveling a lot from New Zealand to Australia, growing the research business, um, uh, grew it to the point that I ended up uh, moving here in the mid-1990s uh, um, and and kind of flipped the business inside out. So I sold off the two or three other little businesses I'd started, an advisor training business, an advisor software business. Uh, I sold those off. They are both still operating. They're absorbed into other bigger businesses. Um, uh, I'd sold the advisor, uh, the advice business quite a bit earlier than that. So here, this research business was my passion. By mid-90s, it had grown in Australia to the point that I decided to move over here, uh, 95 uh, moved over here and flipped it. So the Australian business became the, the principal corporate with the subsidiaries being New Zealand-based subsidiaries. Uh, and then by uh, end of the 90s, 1999, uh, right, in fact, before uh, the, the dot-com uh, crash in the US, 
Uh, I sold the business um, uh, 1st of April, as it turned out, 1999, uh, to Morningstar US. And uh, the, the Australian business of FPG Research changed its name to Morningstar Australasia for Australia and New Zealand and was the first international uh, expansion of Morningstar US. So they had me as an experiment. Uh, I certainly had them as an experiment as well. And we worked our way through trying to establish a business that was the Morningstar way of doing things, but built on what FPG Research had evolved by that point for 17 or 18 years. Yeah, fantastic. Now, that's, this is really fascinating because, you, as you said, that the, the Morningstar business was only in the US at the time. It was. How did you then find uh, such a business to come and buy your, you know, your little research business over the other side of the world when that wasn't something that they did? Well, that's, that's another interesting question. I, there's a lady called Ruth Richardson, and some people may have heard of her. Ruth Richardson was what Australians would call the treasurer for the New Zealand government. She was what New Zealanders call the Minister of Finance, uh, and uh, she happened to have her electorate in the Christchurch area. And uh, when she retired from politics, I asked her if she would be my chair. And so I formed an independent board of directors. I didn't need to. I owned the business, uh, but I formed an independent board of directors. That board of directors um, uh, was chaired by Ruth Richardson, and we set up a strategic plan, and the strategic plan recognized that we were not going to succeed as a research business in New Zealand without a strong connection uh, externally and globally. And so that's what, if you like, precipitated me moving across to Australia. But the, the agenda in moving to Australia was to grow Australia to the point that the Australia corporate with a New Zealand subsidiary was attractive to internationals. So I, I, I visited every year to the US from 1983 on, 1982 in fact on, every year I spent time in the US and always about September. So I had built up a relationship with three or four fund research companies in the US. Lippa was one. Uh, there was uh, another firm called Value Track. Uh, there was another firm called Standard & Poor's, some of you may have heard of, and this firm called Morningstar. So I went and did a special visit to the US to go and pitch to these four groups to say, here's what we do. I reckon there's opportunity because we we own the research space in fund research in Australia and New Zealand, FPG Research. We've got 10,000 funds on our database, blah, 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 blah. Um, what about talking to us? Well, Morningstar said no. And then maybe three months later, they came back and said, actually, can we talk? And that took maybe six or nine months. And eventually uh, the deal was done uh, and took effect one April uh, 99. So it was a long, protracted process that began with me pitching to four different groups. Well, fantastic. So that was a lot of hard work. It wasn't just about the pitch. It was about the advisory board. It was about setting up some some <sighs> governance and structure. And there was a lot of uh, and, and a lot of relationships, leading on the relationships that you'd made in the US. Uh, look, I, honestly, I I don't. I I very rarely talk about this. Um, so it's 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 a bit of a privilege. Thank you, Fraser and xy but it's also exhausting to think about because i it was it was a huge amount of work um but i kind of had my eye on the goal and i had this lady called ruth richardson who became uh it became a joint venture uh 51 owned by me for and my business and 49 percent owned by morningstar inc uh we formed this new company morningstar australasia uh, which was owned this more or less 50-50. And the independent chair was Ruth Richardson. So she was kind of, uh, a, a, she was my mentor and a, a fearless whip cracker, uh, about half my height, maybe uh, five foot, and I'm six foot four. Um, and um, so it needed, it needed her drive. I mean, I'm a driven character, but the value of having an external director and director set uh, is immeasurable. Uh, it it was exhausting, but but uh, there we go. That was that was how yeah, we got there. It certainly had a great outcome. So uh, th thanks for sharing that story. 
Uh, as we sort of fast forward now, I guess, to the business that you've got now, uh, we, we mentioned at the beginning the Portfolio Construction Forum and the two major parts to it, um, uh, the SEMA, the CIMA Society, and also the Phenology College. Let's mm. let's dive into the Phenology College side. Do you want to give us a bit of an overview of, of what that is and, 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 and how that works? Sure. If I may phrase it, let me take half a second to give some context to that. So so the Phonology College is the special interest group that is focused particularly on the individual investor, individual client-facing financial advisor community. Um, and, and even more, those who are financial advisors who are actively interested in growing their knowledge and their skills and their competence in client engagement, if you like, in the investment space. Now, that isn't all that surprising for me to be interested in that if you kind of wind back to the the two or three comments I've made on the way through. I've got a psychology degree. I started a financial advisory firm. I started as a financial advisor. I mean, that it's kind of like you you, you can take take the boy out of that, but you can't take that out of the boy. And I, so I have a deep-seated passion around the role that uh, financial advice plays. I have an abhorrence openly of individual investors, individual Australians trying to do their own thing in the investment world. Um, and And I also have a really strong conviction around the role that professional management of investment plays. And that's the bit I think that the AMP policy connected me with, my time with Norwich connected me with, this unbundling connected me with. So if you if you kind of draw this thread through where I've been, the end of that, as much as I say I love the technicalities and I focus on investment stuff and so the SEMA Society is a really important piece of what we do, in a lot of ways my love of the role that financial advice plays is what has backed into the establishment of the Phonology College. So the Phonology College is this bundle of support services for financial advisors who are focused on investment to help them do a better job connecting investing with investors. That's what Phonology College is all about. Yeah, fantastic. And if we break down, as we mentioned before, it's a, it's a word that's made up of two things. Um, Behavioural finance being the first part. Talk to mm. me about how you. Well, how would you describe that to, to most people? Well, so at the heart of financial advice is um, core principles of economics, core principles of finance, and finance in and of itself has got this set of principles that are based around what you could call conventional finance or classical finance, some people would call it. And conventional finance and classical finance essentially says everybody is rational and everybody behaves in a rational way. And that's the whole basis of finance theory. But what we all know intuitively, if not through formal training, is actually um, normal is not rational, normal is completely irrational. And that is what behavioral finance is about. But behavioral finance by itself is, in in fact, a finance uh, discipline that helps you understand what are the biases that people have. And we describe five types of biases. We might touch on that in a bit. But what are the biases that people have that move them away from being rational? And everybody has them. I have them. You have them. And there's five broad types of biases. And then those biases are what end up informing the beliefs that we have. And, and Fraser, you and I haven't talked, but I suspect some of our beliefs that we have, you have and I have, will have a commonality because of the culture of New Zealand influencing how we grew up. And then some of our biases will be influenced further by the culture of Australia because we've both lived here for a good period of time. So understanding our biases is critical to understanding how behavioral finance influences what we do and then ultimately what we believe. But behavioral finance by itself is just more theory. 
is just more detail in the finance discipline. You've then got to turn that theory into practical effect, and that's what investor psychology is about. But let me stop there. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. We'll get into that investor, that that practical. Um, as I always say, you know, the, the plan itself is nothing if it's not implemented. So that we'll get into that in a second. Mm. Uh, let's dig deep into these biases because um, I, I also love them and, and, and follow them as well. Uh, let's start with the, the first one of, of somebody's values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've categorized biases into this group of five. We call them the big five bias types. Uh, as distinct from the big five personalities, the big five bias types that ultimately affect our personality, uh, they ultimately affect our beliefs, and values as the first one is really um, our our individual judgment of uh, purpose, of what we hold deeply in life, and it's influenced by our personal ethics, um, and there's an, there's an ability to be able to frame that up and to be able to understand what are the values we hold deeply. Mm. And, and my encouragement would be to uh, all of our listeners is to take to pause and take time to formally understand um, what values you hold deeply. And there are lots of tools and services that will help appraise that. We, we provide uh, an example of that. But, but there's a whole raft of things that can help us understand what are the values we hold. And, and maybe uh, some of our listeners don't yet have uh, kids, don't yet have family, but I reckon unless each of us have clarity around the values we hold deeply, our ability to be able to um, influence people around us for good is impaired. And especially if we've got kids Bringing kids up, I think knowing our own values is really critical. And then ultimately, in terms of giving advice, knowing our own values is critical before we can understand the values of our clients. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, understanding how you can elicit your own values is really important. It also helps you be able to, you know, think about what your clients' values might be. And I always, I love the saying that, uh, you know, you sort of, you, you don't really know if you're providing value to your client until you understand what their values are. And then you can relate what That's you so do true. back to their That's values. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And, uh, and the next one, uh, as you sort of meant, mentioned that um, values are uh, influenced by was uh, around ethics. Yeah. And of course, uh, in the FASIA world, we, we have this uh, harping on about ethics and that's not unreasonable uh, at all. Uh, uh, you know, there's a reason why um, the end conclusion with FASIA, whatever we think of it, says uh, we need to have a core foundation of uh, understanding of ethics. Uh, ethics is is uh, an interesting topic. Um, it's it's kind of moral principles of right and wrong, and those two are able to be um, uh, dissected and learned and understood because they're different for different people. The framework is different for different people, and that is a bias type in the sense that some people have an ethical framework that isn't necessarily wrong. It's just different to the ethical framework that others have. And so those differences in ethical framework are going to end up biasing the way we end up uh, uh, concluding our belief set. So values are an influence. Um, They are in turn influenced by ethics. Ethics is another influence set as another bias type. Yeah, exactly. And I I think of ethics as um, uh, a, a... A more of a group thing as well. Um, the, the you know the, the the ethics that's acceptable and financial advice is the is the ethics of the group, not necessarily the ethics of the individual. Whereas values can be very individualized. Uh, sure, sure, but you, you, nonetheless, you know the the ethical foundation needs to be owned by the individual and then expressed in a group environment where you've got shared values and shared ethics. That's where you'll coalesce. In fact, there's a there's a term I often repeat, and that is that, um, you know, community is nothing other than, and it's a big nothing, but nothing other than a, a group of people who have shared values and shared ethics. And if you have shared values and shared ethics, you'll become a, a collective community. So I, I would suspect that XY is not just about um, age. It's also about shared values, shared ethics, uh, and that's that's a core piece, a core tenet of why this group that you're an important part of uh, collect together. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Uh, takes takes us to the uh, the third bias, which is uh, 
as you sort of mentioned, um, cultural. Mm, I touched on that a little bit. So values biases, ethical biases, cultural biases. I mean, we know I, I spent time a number of years ago running study tours as part of Portfolio Construction Forum uh, to the BRIC economies as they were emerging in the uh, in the early 2000s, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And the, the cultural influences on, for example, um, uh, the Chinese population compared to the Russian population, compared to the Indian population, compared to the Brazilian population, quite different. And similarly, when you synthesize the multicultural environment that is Australia, there are cultural threads that mean that some of those inside Australia, for example, or inside New Zealand, for example, some of those individuals have a certain bias type from their cultural heritage, from the from the, the immigrants who came to Australia, came to New Zealand, and some have another. And so understanding those cultural biases is is really critical. And and for those of you who never lived in another country, you, you might not fully appreciate that if you haven't integrated a lot with other uh, cultures, other ethnic groups, you might not appreciate that a lot. The, the little bit that I can understand is coming from New Zealand to Australia and seeing the cultural differences because there are significant cultural differences. I do a lot of work with the Wayside Chapel in Australia and you, we have a very strong indigenous program as a part of that. Uh, and you, you look at these cultural differences they are significant. They create bias. Bias is not a word that is a bad word. It's simply saying let's recognize that we have different perspectives that end up making us different. And that's part of the tapestry of life. So, yes, cultural biases. Yeah, absolutely. In Australia, being a melding pot of different cultures, it's a really important one. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, number four is uh, cognitive. So, essentially, mm. it's the, uh, you know, the financial literacy conversation. How much does my uh, client know and understand? Um, where am I going to pitch this? Where am I going to enter to the conversation? There's a really uh, and and most people think of behavioral finance, if I could suggest uh, Fraser, as just being about cognitive biases. So um, there's there's identified something like 160 uh, cognitive biases, and that's just how we're kind of wired as individuals, how our brain is is wired up. Uh, and and the different perceptions we have, the way we make judgments, the way we reason things. And so, you know, Fraser Jack versus Graham Rich, we all have different cognitive influences or biases in the just the way we go about making decisions. And and so understanding those cognitive biases is critical. And we we uh, you know hear lots of things talking about the different biases that are cognitive biases. What I'm uh, putting to uh, our listeners today is that cognitive biases are only one type of bias in behavioral finance. Values, ethical, cultural, and cognitive, and the last one of emotional biases are all equally important, but affect how we make decisions in uh, quite different ways and then meld together to make our personality. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned the last one being emotional, which is generally how a lot of people start making decisions or that first initial gut idea thought. And of course, that comes back to a lot of the, their, mm. their past and history and whether they've mm-hmm. been hurt before or injured or, or, or they're, you know, all those types of things. So emotional, I, I, we know that people make decisions emotionally. And, and when it comes to financial yeah. decisions, they should be making them uh, rationally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, absolutely. They, they. There's a saying I remember from I don't know where, but years back. Um, all of us make decisions based on emotion, but then ultimately backed up with logic, backed up with some reasoning, backed up with some cognitive process, and that's why there's this term called buyer's remorse, because you, you buy on emotion. That's why the you know the the chocolates are by the counter uh, when you go to check out because you make the emotional decision, but then you regret it later because um, you've kind of thought it through and thought, you know, I made that decision on an emotional basis. And so our role in giving financial advice needs to recognize these five types of biases and how they influence because um, we have a duty to understand not only our own biases including our own emotional makeup and the way we emote. I mean, I'm, I can kind of run at the mouth in case the, the listeners haven't figured, uh, but we need to figure out how we individually emote and how our clients emote 
and react and then how that emotional stuff connects with the logic stuff so you you're, you're completely correct when you say fraser that the decisions that people make based on emotion our clients amongst them and how we as advisors or you as advisors look to influence your clients to make decisions needs to be a measure of emotional relevance but also logic relevance cognitive relevance yeah fantastic and 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 sometimes people make emotional decisions and then they they invent cognitive information to back it up just <laughs> so, just to make them feel better but that, right. that probably leads us directly into the uh, the investor psychology part uh, of the equation when we start talking about the you know the, the psychology mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. actually now believing in um, that what we're doing is the right for them, thing for them and implementing it and getting in, getting involved in that process now that they understand why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, I like to say that that conventional finance we talked about is what investors should do. That's the theory. Behavioral finance is what investors actually do. That's the kind of normal person um, with all these biases we've talked about, for example. Investor psychology is about what investors could do with some coaching, with some behavior change that is appropriate behavior change. It's it's helping take the behavioral finance and turn it into a practical outcome of here are the things that you need to change. Here are the consequences if you don't change. Um, so it's it's the engagement relationship. It's the practical application of conventional finance and behavioral finance in the relationship with the client. And that's why I really like this notion of phenology being part behavioral finance is having competence around the core knowledge pieces, those five bias types and so on, building up your knowledge there, but also building up your skill in being able to engage with clients through that um, uh, investor psychology uh, set of activities, through skills development in engaging with clients and understanding yourself. So this this is the sets and reps conversation, right? The the, the actual doing the work, creating That's new right. habits, forming new habits, becoming right. actually transforming into something different. That's right. In a in a in a uh, maybe a physical activity sense, it's kind of understanding, e.g., what is lactic acid, and how does that how do, you know how does lactic acid form? Yeah. So that's kind of the behavioral finance side, mm. and then. Uh, the investor psychology side is now I need to know how to cool down, how to manage my behavior in my exercise regime. So I cope with lactic acid. I know what it is that's coming and I know how to cope with it and manage it. I know how to manage my behavior. Yep. So it's th- that's why the two are critical. If all we do is learn behavioral finance stuff, all we've got is a head packed full of, ah, now I understand there's five bias types. Well, what the hang does that mean when it comes to your practicing? Yeah. All you know is about lactic acid. You don't know about how to actually manage it in a practical sense. Yeah, fantastic. So in in keeping with that theme, we've kind of just described the theory behind what the phenology college is, mm-hmm. but the practical side of it mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. is broken down into sort of, you've got sort of six main parts of that as well. So let's, in, in, the, in the theory of exactly what we were just saying, let's talk about the six main parts of that. So you sort of start with a few um, webinars or zoominars, I think you like to call them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like kind of quirky words. Um, and uh, so we don't, we don't have webinars, we have zoominars. Yeah. Um, and uh, I always start a zoominar with, um, with uh, the um, OK Zoomer. Um, yeah. And um, so the phonology college, uh, Fraser, um, is um, – a program that's got a whole array of different tools and services and courses and shorter education pieces, longer education pieces. And it starts with um, a self-assessment that is complementary called the Phonology Benchmarking Indices or the FBI. And that shows kind of how quirky I am because the guy who heads the FBI research I call Agent Hampshire. uh, his name's Rob, but I like calling him Agent Hampshire because he's in charge of the FBI. Yeah. And um, Phonology Benchmarking Indices is a self-assessment tool to allow – it's only accessible by practicing financial advisors. And uh, it's designed to help a financial advisor understand 
the gaps in a sense of their uh, knowledge through self-assessment across a whole array of issues in the phonology space, behavioral finance, investor psychology space. So it's a self-assessment tool that allows financial advisors to say, okay, let me get a handle on where I'm at at the moment. And then it ends up mapping to subsequent suggestions for continuing education, personal professional development in the phonology space. So inside phonology college is this array of things. You can access those things without being part of phonology college. But to get the composite value out of it, the phonology benchmarking indices is the framework that allows you to capitalize and maximize on what's inside phonology college. And then there's a whole bunch of things that you only get if you've done the FBI, um, including uh, complementary Zoominars and uh, such like uh, that are building the special interest group engagement, building the community to use the word I had before in the phonology space. Yep. Fantastic. I do. I do love quirky words as well. By the way, I think uh, the zoomers is a great thing. Great for uh, for egg zoomers, y zoomers, and baby zoomers. <laughs> Thank you, Fraser. No problems. Now the uh, the FBI. We might get into a little bit more in, in a second, but I wanted to touch on the fact that uh, you've you've got some accreditations in there, uh, as well as a, uh, a physical summit. Mm, we do. Um... The way Portfolio Construction Forum has evolved all of its programs is to distinguish between uh, a set of uh, uh, hybrid programs. Now, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, organisations, uh, universities, etc., run hybrid programs now. The hybrid programs the forum runs are a little bit different in the sense that they are designed to be. Uh, an in-studio audience. So every program we run has, a, a, in effect, a TV studio. We have an in-studio audience. And then we have a whole array of uh, connected uh, boardrooms or groups. So uh, it tends to be our uh, lowest preference to have uh, those involved with our hybrid programs sitting in their own office by themselves, uh, that doesn't foster community. It doesn't foster the kind of interaction that's necessary. So we have a uh, Sydney-based studio, which can hold a couple of hundred people. And then we have uh, a set of uh, boardrooms that we connect people with. And some of them are advisory groups who say, okay, we're in Port Macquarie, uh, we're in Cairns, we're in, uh, you know, in, in, in New Zealand, uh, we've got a group in Singapore who now meet. Um, and they collect together in a boardroom or in an office um, uh, office room with somewhere between half a dozen and 10 or 12. There's two or three of these remote groups that have had 20 or 30 people in a hotel room, uh, in a kind of seminar room. Uh, and, and so that's how we run a hybrid program. So I'd really encourage any of you participating in what we call Phonology Summit to not think of it if you're not able to attend the studio as something that you're going to be stuck away in your own office, but rather something that we are taking active steps to make sure you are part of a small group interaction session. So that's the hybrid programs we run. Then we have some Zoominars, which are in fact, uh, I mean, you could meet as a group, but they're just a short two hour burst. Uh, we run those once a month. Um, and uh, so the phonology uh, Zoominars, then we have some courses that are individual uh, self-study. So uh, one of them we call BFI and practice. So BFI is the short term for behavioral finance. Uh, it's kind of separated out the behavioral finance piece. So we have about a 15 hour uh, or so BFI and practice uh, program. We have another program that's investor psychology and practice. And investor psychology and practice has got a small amount of lecture stuff and a majority of stuff is masterclass activity. Um, so that, that's that's kind of a quick burst across what's inside Phonology College. Yeah, fantastic. And now let's get into the FBI piece of it. Why is, why is benchmarking such an important piece of this puzzle? Well, um, uh, one of the things, Fraser, that is implicit but 
ends up not being explicit in, for example, all the regulatory requirements, uh, the setting out of a learning plan, an education plan. It's it's all very well. You just as a, an advisor saying, OK, well, in the next period of time, I'm going to pluck this, this, this and this. I think I'll do that. Uh, I'll go to three conferences. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do the next thing. But how do you know they actually fit with what your gaps are? Yes, you want to focus on some things that are interesting, but you also want to make sure that you are managing uh, exposed weaknesses, known weaknesses, or alternatively, that you are overtly disclosing, this is an area I'm weak in, but how do you know that you're weak? How do you know you're strong? How do you have this? It's, it's like a fitness test. It's like going for a, a for a med. It's like going to the Institute of Sport. You get in, but before you get in or you go to the army, before you get it, they're going to have a whole set of tests, brain scans and blah, 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 to say, okay, let's benchmark. Where are you up to compared to what we need to get to where we want to go? And in a sense, it's practicing what the advisor preaches by saying, well, how much are you going to invest in yourself benchmarking yourself against best practice across a whole array of things. That's what the phonology benchmarking indices are about. Um, it's it, And I, I, <laughs> I really like it called the FBI. So I really like the FBI because it is doing the deep investigation into, okay, where are you, what's your status? Where are your weaknesses? Where are your strengths? What are your gaps? And then helping you figure out, okay, what are the things you need to do to backfill and to set out a learning plan that's got some structure to it rather than just sort of some guesswork or some character in the licensee that says, oh, I reckon you could do this, that, and the next thing. It's a bit weak. Well, what's the proof? What's the evidence that shows that's where you're weak, that's where you're strong? That's what the FBI does. Yeah, fantastic. So in normal CPD world, it's around saying, oh, let's set up a plan for everybody. Um, yeah. But the FBI is really just saying, let's set up an individualized learning plan that, that is completely structured to where that person is at at the time. Well, that's right. And then the, the nice cherry on the top, uh, Fraser, is you get some CPD points for doing the FBI. So you kind of can get, which the forum manages a CPD program. And so it means you can get CPD for learning how to get CPD. So uh, I shouldn't say that too loud, but <laughs> but it's totally legitimate. Um, you are, self-assessment is, is a valid uh, activity in learning terms. So you get CPD for doing an assessment. Fantastic. And so after the assessment, then you can focus on the areas that you're going to grow the most mm, in. Mm, mm. Now, you mentioned that, uh, that that you do look after CPD as well. How does that work? So um, Portfolio Construction Forum manages a, a curriculum of content. We've talked about that. Uh, and we curate it into a whole set of different programs. We've kind of talked about that that ends up with the SEMA Society and the Phonology College. Um, but ultimately... There's um, an absolutely fundamental requirement for everybody to both have CPD hours tracked, but there's also a passion that people have to see, well, how am I going? How much have I done here? How much have I done there? It's the same as, you know, the rugby players or the footy players having this little bleeper on the back of their neck. Uh, in their jersey, not embedded, uh, that they run around with it says, well, you've run here, you've run there. Well, that's the CPD thing. So we have an accreditation program. It's connected with, uh, we, we have a team of people who manage accreditation. Uh, the Financial Planning Association recognise it. We have, when we manage accreditation, we manage it across 20 different designations. That's unique. I'm not aware of any other organization that maps one accreditation learning activity to 20 different designations, be that AFA, FPA, SMSF Association, FASIA, ASIC, the whole shebang, Financial Markets Authority in New Zealand. Um, uh, I hope you like the way I'm keeping on plugging New Zealand on the way through this. Phrase. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> I want to I want to get some more uh, XY uh, members in New Zealand for you. Um, Fantastic, let's do it. Let's do it. So we we've got we've got a bundle of New Zealanders who come to Phonology College. So we should tell them about this. Um, anyway, um, uh, we manage that accreditation, and then it drops into a, um, a reporting portal called MyCE. And inside MyCE, it's got your learning plan. It's got all your stuff all the stuff you've done, you can add your own content in there if you want. And then if you want to export it to another thing that your licensee says you must report it into this or that, 
but you've got managed for you your own CPD accreditation record. Uh, you've you've put in your own content if you want to manually. You've got content from the forum, content from Phonology College, content from our partners who are education partners. Uh, so there's a whole raft of fund companies and such like who run their own programs that we accredit. Uh, it cross links to FBA if you're a member of FBA and you need to report to them. So that's called MyCE. So a, a, a core part of what we do is accreditation management. And that's very different from our, uh, if you like, education content that we run that is our own, like is in, inside Phonology College. Yeah, fantastic. Well, there's a lot going on, obviously. Uh, what have you got coming up, though? What's a, what, what Any plans or changes for the future? I, look, after all this talk, I was thinking of having a rest for a while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have. We've got two or three things. We run a monthly Zoominar. Next one's 25th of June. Uh, happy to tell you uh, what that is. It's got some more phonology content in it. We've got a fellow called Herman Brody. Um, he's an, an exceptional communicator based out of Birmingham in the UK. Uh, I hope Herman doesn't listen to this, but you wouldn't think that much came out of Birmingham. Um Although, how many of you... Commonwealth Games, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, Birmingham, Netball was there. And also, uh, wasn't the the Peaky Blinders? Has anybody ever seen that series? Oh, yes. That that is just amazing. I think that was up in the Birmingham area. It was in Birmingham, you're right. Anyway, um, Herman is not at all like uh, the the bloke from Peaky Blinders. Um, uh, He is an exceptional communicator and has got a specialty in behavioural finance. Uh, so uh, he is the um, he is the lecturer for the BFI and practice uh, um, learning uh, program certificate program. So he's one of the presenters, and then we've got Professor Ron Bird uh, as another. So those uh, that's the next Zoominar. In August, we have a program that is uh, called Strategies Conference, which is investment strategies. In October, we have Phonology Summit. Uh, the 16th of uh, October, I believe it is. So we have a constant array of things just rolling through, focused on some aspect of investing, a chunk of it uh, phonology, some of it investment markets. Um, We run a program in February called Market Summit, uh, which is a hybrid program. Um, We run a program called Research Roundtable every month, which is a deep dive into an investment strategy. So there's a lot of stuff going on, uh, Fraser. Yeah, there certainly is. Um, And if people want to find a bit more about uh, about it all, what's the best way for them to find out? We have a URL that ends with .edu.au or in New Zealand .ac.nz, so academic.newzealand or education.australia. Um, so it's Portfolio Construction Forum, big long word. Um, the word forum is in there, it makes it longer, but it's meant to convey community. So portfoliokonstructionforum.edu.au or .ac.nz, uh, that's how you find out stuff. Or, you know, bang me uh, bang me an email. I'm very happy to respond to anybody. I'm on LinkedIn. Link in with me. Uh, very happy to be honest, LinkedIn is where I connect with most people in a quick, quick message. So find me on LinkedIn, Graham Rich, um, and connect with me and I'll let you know what the stuff is. That's perhaps easy. Uh, we put out a lot of stuff through LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, that's that's the stuff, Fraser. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much, Graham, for coming on, telling us your story and uh, all <laughs> of the amazing work you're doing at the moment and continue to do. So really appreciate it. Fraser, I'm delighted. I mean, I, I I know I do talk a bit, but I, I love what I do, and I really really enjoy engagement with the advisor community in whatever way. Uh, we've got a few kind of uh, quirky, discreet, distinct ways we do things, but uh, delighted to be uh, connecting with your audience. And uh, thanks so much for the invitation. Thank you. Well, there you have it, another episode of the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and I'm joined by Emily Blanche. G'day, Em. Hey, Fraser. How's it going? I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. Fabulous. <laughs> it's a good Let's... time of the week. We do the shout-outs, and, uh, and we get to shout-out uh, some really cool stuff that's going on in the community. So... Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, today's shout-out, I should say, goes to the Ethics Committee. So they have put together a new determination. So it was around a couple who have separated but have an SMSF. And is the advisor still able to 
be an advisor for both of the couples as uh, acting for the SMSF. So quite a bit of background. Uh, they really went into detail and um, really di dissected this um, ethical situation and came up with their determination. And I really enjoyed this one because this is a topic that comes up quite regularly on the platform is how can you handle those situations when you have a couple that are separating. So yeah, shout out to the ethics committee and just a reminder to anyone who is uh, facing an ethical dilemma, you can go to xyadvisor.com forward slash ethics and submit that ethical dilemma and get a peer reviewed determination to help you guide your direction and provide some support. So shout out to the ethics committee. Um, and if you are facing an ethical dilemma, highly recommend jumping on and seeking some help. Fantastic. And uh, if you're interested in finding out about the results of that, jump on again, have a look uh, and there'll be more results posted as they come out. Mm -hmm.